This week on Political Research Digest, when rainbow coalitions in diversifying cities bring minority leaders, and when they don't. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. In many U.S. cities, Latinos and Asians are gaining population share in previously white or black-dominated areas. But the vast majority of cities still have white mayors, even those with majority-minority populations. So when do racial minorities gain representation, and do African Americans ally with other minorities to elect the same candidates? A new article, Racial Change, Racial Threat, and Minority Representation in Cities, published in Urban Affairs Review, argues that majority white and majority black cities have resisted representation for new immigrant populations. I talked to author Paru Shah of the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee about the effects of rising minority groups. Blacks and Latinos do sometimes vote for the same candidates, but their alliances may depend on elite endorsements and racial issues. I also talked to Andrea Benjamin, soon of the University of Missouri, about her new book from Cambridge University Press, Racial Coalition Building in Local Elections, Elite Cues, and Cross-Ethnic Voting. She finds that endorsements can sometimes move African Americans to support Latino candidates, but it's harder for Latino endorsements to produce black candidate support. Political scientists traditionally argue that racial minorities need large population sizes to produce elected officials of the same race. Paru Shah says, even with fast-rising minorities, existing majorities rarely give up co-ethnic representation. I think the most important findings from my papers are that racial threat, which is this idea that people feel intimidated or worried about losing power, is still a strong predictor of what who actually gets elected to office, and that this idea that once in power people are loath to relinquish it continues to be true, even if the people in power are not uh, necessarily the ones who we think of as having power in this country, like people of color. And so I think the the main finding is that, that those kinds of mechanisms of wanting to hold on to power remain true even in 2017, even as places are really becoming much more, as I call my paper, multiracial. The research in this area focuses on the racial identity of mayors. There's a long history in urban politics looking at mayors, and it is in many ways the stepping stone for many candidates of color and elected officials, really like where they start in terms of their office holding. And so, I mean, for social scientists, the nice thing about mayors is that there's lots of them, and they have there's a lot of variation in their race, more so at least than in other elected office. I also think it's nice because it's where politics is local. Um, This is where people really notice who's in power and the uh, kind of dynamics in a city can really be illustrated, um, more so I think than in other higher levels of office. Shaw studied both elected mayors nationwide and all candidates for mayor in California, finding similar patterns. First, we're looking at who gets elected, so making some assumptions about who is available to individuals to vote for. And here is where I find that really it's in majority white cities that we find racial threat kind of rearing its head most prominently in terms of the kind of holding on to power, even as a city, really significantly shifts. And again, this I think that narrative really played out in, I think, um, politics with what happened in um, Ferguson and this idea that like how is it possible that a city that's majority black has no uh, white uh, or sorry that has no black representation Um, and so that was looking at that and then in terms of candidate emergence or this idea of like who actually decides to run 
what's interesting, I think, here, and this kind of also builds upon some of my other um, work, is that it's not just like who your um, who your co-ethnic or co-racial voters are, right? So if I'm an Asian American in California thinking about running, that's going to be one of the things that I look to. But the uh, the kind of the long literature now out there on what kind of holds people back from running suggests that there's a lot of other things like um, strategic considerations and opportunities and resources that really hold people back. And so I wanted to look and see if there are ways in which you can then look at how strategic voters might think, or sorry, strategic candidates might think about the composition of the electorate to make some determinations. And again, I think what's interesting here is that much of the racial kind of threat arguments end up playing out again in terms of not feeling confident um, that you're going to be able to get those what we would call crossover voters, um, especially if you're the first minority to run in that city. The baseline is still minority underrepresentation with whites dominant. The most likely race and gender of a mayor or any elected official in the United States is white and male. That's going to always be the modal category. And I think what you see at the mayoral level is, you know, follows that same pattern. And it just goes again to show that even as places, right, change in terms of the demographics, who has power in those places has remained to be the, the white leadership in those cities that for a variety of reasons has been able to um, run for office and then maintain themselves in those offices. She found that whites sometimes even ally with blacks against rising Latino populations. Immigration is one of those uh, touch points where African American and um, white voters might see themselves aligned against Latinos in certain contexts. Shaw found that in cities with existing black or Latino majority, the other minority can help the existing majority elect a mayor. But she also found broad patterns consistent with black Latino competition. In the broader research, it really demonstrates that allies kind of come from a common enemy, right? And this idea that there's or some other common problem that they can rally around. What Again, one of the pieces that was kind of motivated this paper for me was looking at places like Compton, California, where African-Americans and Latinos are not really fighting for power versus kind of coming together. And I think it, again, has to do with one of the things that I think I find is that once you're in power, giving that up is really difficult and people are not necessarily interested in doing that. And so even as places become, even as it becomes pretty obvious that there are majority populations that are not being represented. And so my, I think, tentative findings about multiracial places, since there are a few of them, is that those are the places where we might see some ability to kind of cross um, racial lines and vote for the other candidate. But it's, again, I think really tenuous still. And, and I think nationally and at the state level, we see similar things where there are moments where it seems as if people are coming together, but I don't think that there's any permanent alliances being built yet. Black Latino cooperation may rely on cues from elites, but Andrea Benjamin, author of Racial Coalition Building in Local Elections, told me the patterns for blacks and Latinos may not match. In many cases, African Americans are very in tune to these organizations that offer endorsements. Now, any endorsement doesn't work. Um, in the experiments that I run, um, an endorsement alone for a white candidate doesn't move black voters. But 
when a Latino candidate receives an endorsement or when white and Latino candidates receive endorsements in the context of racial issues, African-Americans will move. And with Latinos, it's a little bit less so. And by that, I mean, on my dependent variable for vote choice, I couldn't get any movement up for Latinos. Partially, that's because they already preferred candidate two in each experimental treatment. So there just wasn't any movement in the sense that they didn't prefer that candidate anymore. Um, and so there is a null result on that, which in some ways I like because I think we don't see enough null results. Um, but then on a secondary dependent variable, I can get them to move when thinking about which candidate cares about their group. And it looks very much like the black sample in that a white candidate with an endorsement alone doesn't move Latino voters to believe that that candidate cares more about them. But it does for a black candidate on his, his own. And then in the context of racial or ethnic issues, then Latinos believe both whites and black candidates with an endorsement care more about their group. Her book includes lots of examples of big city mayor elections with all kinds of racial voting patterns matching every expectation. Conventional wisdom is mixed. There's definitely examples, as I just mentioned, where candidates have built these coalitions. Um, you know, New York 2005 comes to mind. Fernando Ferrer builds a black Latino coalition. He's explicit in it. He does gain, you know, he earns enough Latino votes, which we might expect as a coalition candidate. He earns a majority of the black votes, but he doesn't win. Right. And then the same thing or a similar case in Chicago around a Latino candidate, you know, Chuy Garcia runs on an explicit black Latino coalition, doesn't get enough black votes partially, probably, as I say in the book, because, you know, Barack Obama endorsed Rahm Emanuel and that's sort of a big endorsement. And he also didn't win. Right. And so in some ways, but all that to say, I think that the conventional wisdom is blacks and Latinos, you know, always fighting. It's always competitive. There's there's a tense relationship there. And I would argue, sure, there, there are some cases of that, but I don't think that that's the, the full story. I think that there are cases where Blacks and Latinos have worked together. I mean, even, you know, Villaraigosa with his 2005 win, you know, he needed Black, White, and Latino voters to win that election because in the previous election without Black voters, he didn't win either. Beyond election results, Benjamin relies on two types of experiments with fake candidates and real candidates to test endorsement effects. We're each exposed to one of eight treatments. You know, where I varied only those three factors. And, and so in that sense, it really does try to try to mimic the real world in the sense that I had literally read over a thousand newspaper articles about local election, and that's where those designs came from. Then in the next chapter, I build on that, and I do a nationally representative sample experiment, but I also include whites to see how whites respond when blacks and Latinos have made explicit black-Latino coalitions, where they run saying, hey, I'm candidate A, I built a black-Latino coalition, and one of the interesting results from that chapter is that while white voters in the experiment don't really punish any of the Latino candidates relative to the baseline, they don't prefer him any less or any more. With the black candidate, when he, on his own, they're less likely to vote for him. So even for a black candidate, if he builds a Latino coalition, whites are less likely to punish him, which I think is really interesting given sort of what we know about sort of racial attitudes and, and how, how white voters respond to black candidates. Latino endorsements may not be as influential because Latinos lack African-Americans' long history of group leadership. Just one distinction is I think that for African-Americans, one of the reasons why I think the results are so strong for them in each of the studies that I've done is because I think that this is the political context that they exist in. And so it might not even be a formal organization as, as established as the committee here in Durham, but even the churches, right? The churches will often make um, you know, they won't make formal announcements because they're not packed, but they'll say something on Sunday. And the newspaper will report, oh, this minister endorsed, that minister endorsed, this subset of ministers endorsed. 
And so I think African-Americans are just much more used to looking for that cue. And I think one of the things I've thought more about more recently with Latinos is that that's just not the context yet. And so I know one of the things I've been really struggling with here in this project and when I finally have been able to interview I, I, I want to use air quotes, but it's a podcast, but that I want to call Latino leaders in quotes, right, because I'm not even sure what that term means, right? I'm not sure that we, that, that we have a designated Latino leader in this community. But I've asked each one of them, do Latinos need a pass? Benjamin found the strongest effects in cases where racial issues were salient, but that puts candidates in a difficult position. I would never advise any candidate to make their campaign explicitly racial. I just don't think it's a good idea. I mean, from top down, right? President Obama did not win his first election talking about race all the time. I just think that it's, there's a danger in it. Again, but you know your city, and so maybe in your city, if you maybe can build an independent power politics, um, like Hero talks about, where you don't need the white vote, maybe you can do it. But otherwise, I think you sort of should sort of not do that. But I think that there are several ways that race and ethnicity enter the campaign. One of the most positive ways is just excitement, right? Even though we live in a, in a time where we have seen an increase in minority candidates, there are still several major cities that, you know, Los Angeles, you know, um, even, you know, this, you know, now they're in their second term of, you know, second or fourth term of a Latino mayor. You know, it's been a hundred years since they've had a Latino mayor. So it's exciting. Or, you know, Chicago has never had a Latino mayor. New York has never had a Latino mayor. So when these candidates emerge, it's exciting. So we talk about it, right? And I think that that's one way that race can become salient. I think the other way is through the media, additionally, which is talking about who's supporting a particular candidate. You know, the news might say, oh, you know, Villaraigosa is doing well among Latinos and blacks, or Garcia is doing well among Latinos and blacks. Um, Bradley's doing well with Latinos and blacks, right? So I think that there's a way in which that happens. She also found that Black-Latino cooperation may be strong in the political arena without changing each group's attitudes about the other one. I don't think it's as contentious as everyone makes it sound, at least not in the political arena. Now, if we're talking about competition over jobs or racial attitudes, yeah, even in my book in Chapter 4, it is true that the endorsements don't help Blacks or Latinos think more positively about the outgroup overall, right? So racial attitudes are pretty stable. So the endorsements don't matter outside of the political arena, Nationally, it's difficult to see the rise of pan-minority rainbow coalitions that don't turn off whites, especially when political parties enter. It turns out that Democrats, of course, are supportive of this Black-Latino coalition candidate when the candidate is Latino, but Republicans are not. They will not vote for that Latino candidate. But Paru Shah says the national trends are stimulating a lot of new minority candidates at the local level. The things that I've tried to emphasize now as I, you know, when I teach urban politics is that as much as things have really changed at the, at the national level, a lot of those, the um, impacts of those changes are going to be really felt at the local level. And so this idea that in terms of representation, in terms of who should be running and who wants to run, I think there's been this, again, like I said, this interesting shift in terms of more women and more candidates of color running as a result of what's happening at the national level, and they are running at the local level. Benjamin says the parties need to think about how to build support from minority leaders. I hope what this local context shows is that no party should really take the Latino vote or the Asian American vote for granted. Um, and I think that that's what I hope my work shows, is that these coalitions are not just because, oh, blacks love other black, other Latino, just any Latino candidate, right? Even the Latino candidate needs an endorsement from blacks, right? And, and even for Latinos to believe that a black candidate cares about them, that candidate needs an endorsement. Research on rainbow electoral coalitions will become more important as the nation diversifies. Shaw says the next step is to look closely at racially changing cities. 
thing that I would like to do next is really focus on these cities that are becoming multiracial and places that are close to becoming multiracial and looking at them over time. I think that's really where we're going to be able to see how these dynamics play out in terms of representation over the years. Because again, I do think my findings show that the the moments in which places are multiracial may be fleeting. Benjamin wants to look at how elite-level interactions produce endorsements that move voters. The process is important, right? And so I think that that's another thing that I wish I had done better in my book is to try to understand the process of where endorsements come from. They literally don't actually just magically appear, right? People give it a lot of thought, and these organizations have a very strict process about how they give them. And, and when you ask them, they think that they're really helping their voters make the best decisions. And, and I think that that's also really important. There's a lot more to learn. Political Research Digest is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Paru Shah and Andrea Benjamin for joining me. Read more at niskanencenter.org, and please encourage others to subscribe. Join us next time to find out how U.S. Senate majorities play hardball, avoiding the filibuster and using budget reconciliation.